Take a minute or two and find John chapter 15. While you're doing that, I want to review a little bit so we're all on the same page. John chapter 12, Jesus predicts his death, which was a shock to his disciples because they believed he would eventually be king in Jerusalem. And, and so now the plan in their mind is thrown off. He disturbs them more at the beginning of John chapter 13 when he washes their feet. Kings accumulate servants for themselves. Kings don't become servants. Then he says, one of you is going to betray me. Judas had already arranged with the religious leaders to have Jesus arrested. And then Peter, the leader of them, is going to deny even knowing Jesus three times. And then chapters 14 through 16, Jesus is trying to answer for, the, for them the question, how now they are going to carry on his work without him there? He had already trained them how to do this. Earlier in the Gospels, he sends out the 12 disciples. He gives them authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to preach the message, the kingdom of God is here. And they, they go out and they do it. And they're totally surprised. They come back to Jesus, they're celebrating. Then in the next chapter, he does the same thing with a bigger group, this time 72 of his disciples. So he's already trained them how to do this, but now he's surprising them by saying, you know, as you're going to keep doing this ministry, I'm not going to be in the capital uh, in Jerusalem. I'm actually going to be with the Father at the Father's right hand. So he's, he's trying to help them see the picture, help them understand how it's going to be possible for them to carry on this work, even though he's not here. And last week we saw that he promised them an advocate, the Holy Spirit of God. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus would be present with them. And that in the same way that he's been the source of their life for the last three years that they've been following him, he would continue to be the source of their life. He is the vine and they are the branches that come out of the vine and yield the grapes. Today, he's going to prepare them for the opposition that they will experience when they get out there and continue proclaiming his kingdom. There are four things I would love for you to write down this morning. The first one, disciples of Jesus do not belong to the world. He's preparing them for opposition. Disciples of Jesus do not belong to the world. Verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now we need to define, I think, what Jesus means by the world. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, but here he's using the term world with an antagonistic bent. The world he is talking about are collections of people and the systems they create infected with sin and sin's consequences, influenced by Satan, organized without God or in ignorance of God. Collections of people and the systems they create infected with sin and sin's consequences, influenced by Satan, organized without God or in ignorance of God. Now here's what I find interesting. The Pharisees they're the religious opponents of Jesus. At first, they try to, to get Jesus on their side. When he says, no, I'm on my own side, they become his opponents. And they would have hated being associated with the world. In fact, that's what it was all about, to be a Pharisee. They were so meticulous in following God's law, the Torah of the Old Testament, literally, that they wanted to be removed from everyone else. We are separate. We are over here, set apart. And, and Jesus lumps them in throughout the Gospels with the world. World, a, a, a collection of people and the system they create organized 
without God. Even Jesus calls the Pharisees at one point children of, of Satan. And so he's saying to the disciples, whether it's the secular world, whether it's even the religious world, you don't belong to that world. So what do they belong to? They belong to the kingdom of God. And Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom throughout his whole ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And just a couple of chapters from chapter 15 in John's gospel, 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And we read about that kingdom in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Uh, I brought it on the screen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I brought a picture just so we can help understand. I'm kind of a simple guy. When, when Jesus was born, he was born into the world, um, incarnate God. He began preaching about the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 13, he compared it to a mustard seed. Told them another parable, verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So he says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's, it's small. It goes into the ground. It's, you can barely see it. It doesn't seem like it's going to have any effect, but... Over time, you look up one day and it's become the largest of all the, the trees. So what Revelation chapter 11 is showing us is at Jesus' return, the kingdom of this world will have been overcome by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. I didn't know how to illustrate that. So uh, next slide, you know, just big red dot. <laughs> it, it, it overcomes. When Jesus brings a new heaven and new earth, sin and death and hell and Satan are defeated. We read about that in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. We, we hear verse four a lot when people we love are, uh, are transitioning from this life to the life to come. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We often say, you know, in heaven where this person is, there's no crying, there's no mourning, there's no death, there's pain. And that's absolutely true. But in Revelation chapter 21, it's not talking about heaven. It's actually talking about earth. When Christ returned and he brings the fullness of God's kingdom, when, when God's kingdom will have overcome, overtaken, outgrown the kingdom of this world, there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. 
when Jesus returns. Now, most of us are guilty of what Christians have been guilty of for millennia now, drawing a line between regular stuff and spiritual stuff. And we spend most of our week doing the regular stuff, regular job, being a regular person, regular kids, just normal. And then we have moments where we invest in the spiritual stuff. And that's what we're doing here. And we talk about reading the scripture and we're praying for one another and all of that. But, and that's fine most of the time. But then you talk about something like Jesus' return, which the disciples took literally. Jesus is literally going to return. Because we've divided the regular stuff from the spiritual stuff, it's tempting to just lump that into the spiritual stuff, which maybe is true, but it doesn't have a lot to do with me at work tomorrow. But when we think about Jesus' return and the kingdom of God overtaking the kingdom of this world, it's of the regular stuff. His regular feet. I mean, he's the incarnate son of God, so maybe not so regular. But his feet with toes are going to touch down on this earth. And when that happens, the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah will have taken over the kingdom of this world. And even later in Revelation chapter 21, we didn't read it. It's going to say that kings come into the new capital, the holy Jerusalem, and will pay homage to the king. So you can think about prime ministers and presidents and kings and queens, whoever are leading lands, coming into a real place, a real capital in a real new heaven and new earth. So when Jesus says to the disciples, you don't belong to this world, what do they belong to? They belong to the kingdom that is to come. But when Christ comes, his kingdom will be public and it will be visible. Right now, it's secret and invisible. It is still the mustard seed. It's the leaven inside the bread. It's the pearl still under the water in the sea. And it's the treasure still hidden in the field. But we, as followers of Christ, we have found that treasure and we've sold everything that we have to make sure that we can get it. And we found that pearl of great price. We recognize the leaven in the bread and we see the mustard seed and we put our faith in it. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter one, we've been rescued from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son God loves. There's been a citizenship change. So how are we supposed to think of ourselves as citizens of a secret and invisible kingdom? Remember that story in the Old Testament where God is delivering his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. They have, have had nothing there. They have been slaves through the wilderness to a land of promise. And the, the scripture says that that land is going to be flowing with milk and honey. And the reason that that picture is used flowing with milk and honey is because in Egypt, they had no land of their own. They couldn't plant crops. Uh, they couldn't put down permanent settle, settlements because they lived at the whims of their slaveholders, right? In the wilderness, they could not have permanent homes because the wilderness was not a great place to live long-term. But the promised land, that's where they could really settle and, and have roots. They're going to be very fruitful in the promised land. So they get to the edge of the promised land. They send in some spies. And one of the places those spies goes is to Jericho. You remember, uh, if you grew up in church, the walls of Jericho come uh, tumbling down. While they're in there, they meet Rahab and Rahab actually helps them. She's a citizen of Jericho, but she helps them. And so they say to her, essentially, listen, you have been a 
you know, a member, a citizen of Jericho, but now you're really with us. So when Jericho falls, you'll be protected because now you're with us. So my proposal is because we are citizens of a secret and invisible kingdom, it's a mustard seed right now, that we should think of ourselves as spies. Now, I don't know how you normally think of yourself, but I bet it's not as cool as thinking of yourself as a spy. But not like in our culture or our government. I don't know if we have spies or not still, but, you know, to undermine governments. That's not what we're doing. God has sent us into the world to do the same thing that the spies of Jericho have said to Rahab, which is to our friends and family and our coworkers and people we live with. Hey, this is all going to fall. You're with us now. Don't, don't be a citizen of Jericho anymore. Jericho does not have a future. Come and, come and be a part of, of us. And we don't sow seeds of destruction. We do that with an agenda of love and kindness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Secret spies of a secret and invisible kingdom. So it's no wonder Jesus says they're going to hate you because we are a part of a rival Kingdom. Number two, the world will respond to disciples of Jesus the same way it responds to Jesus. Verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And what Jesus said was true. They did persecute him. They did hate him. After he says this to the disciples, chapters 14, 15, 16, he's praying in 17. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They have arranged a trial in the middle of the night for him. It's a rigged trial because they have false witnesses to tell stories about Jesus that were not true. They eventually bring him before Pilate, the Roman government, governor, and instead of Pilate doing what he wants, he's overcome by mob rule, and the crowd is shouting, crucify, crucify. They have Jesus carry his cross, and, and he gets to the top of Golgotha, and he is crucified. Meanwhile, they're ridiculing him. Now, we know the rest of the story. Jesus is resurrected on the third day. He appears to many witnesses over a period of 40 days. He ascends up into heaven to be at the right hand of his father and he commissions his disciples to carry on his work. And guess what? Jesus was right. The same thing that had happened to him happened to them. Within a few chapters of the book of Acts, people are already lobbing accusations at the disciples like you're a bunch of mad men. You're, you, you're acting like you're drunk. And then a chapter later, they're being arrested. They're being persecuted. Right? But some are obeying. Just as some obey Jesus. The same time the early church is being persecuted, Christianity is spreading. Right? Spreading like wildfire, actually. I've been watching this documentary on Saturdays about Paradise, California, a little mountain village up in the northern California, and, and a wildfire came through, and it was devastating. It burnt the whole town down, essentially. The experts, when the fire was happening, believed that everyone in that town would die. All of their roads were cut off. There was no hope. It was miraculous that not as many people died as they were expecting. And so now they're rebuilding the town. And that's what the little docuseries is, is about. And so I've been watching it. And now California is trying to update their building codes so that houses don't burn down quite as easily. And what they're trying to do is to keep out every single ember 
from getting into the house because I guess under those conditions, even one or two tiny little embers will make the house go. And that's what happened with Christianity. When Jesus ascended, these disciples took his word seriously and they started telling the stories of Jesus. People started responding and the authorities started trying to clamp that down. You remember they even arrested some of the apostles and they said, listen, we're not going to keep you in jail. You just got to make us a promise. You got to stop talking about him. And they said, we're not going to stop talking about him. And they didn't. But persecution caused them to scatter. And so one little ember named Philip went up to Samaria. Now there are believers in Samaria. A couple more embers went up to Antioch. Now we have the name Christians because Antioch caught on fire with disciples following Jesus. Some other embers got on a boat and sailed to Greece. And then to Rome. And ideally that's what's going to happen tomorrow. You're going to get in your car and a tiny little ember is going to go from your house to wherever it is you work. Some of you, God is setting aside right now to be an ember that gets on an airplane and goes to some place where people are not claiming Christ there so that in some village somewhere, some town no one has ever heard of. Now there's a church meeting in a house around the name that is above every name because an ember got caught by the wind of the spirit and ended up there. And we see that mix in the world today. Uh, Suffering, persecuting of Christians, but wildfire. One of the strongest churches in the world right now is in Iran, in China, where it's hard to be a Christian. There's a great ministry called Open Doors. They actually have an app, and every morning uh, they update it in how you can specifically pray for a brother or a sister who's being persecuted around the world now. Not back in the olden days, but right now. And Open Door said the five most difficult places to be a Christian today by their metrics, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. In the scripture, we see many different reasons for persecution. A lot of times we just assume it's, it comes from the government. And sometimes it does. The Sanhedrin were the government leaders of Jerusalem and most of Israel at the time of Jesus. And they are really the ones who had Jesus executed. We also see economic reasons. That's Acts chapter 16. The apostle Paul was walking through the market and a girl who has been possessed by a demon is following him. And, and she's saying true things about Paul and his friends, but you don't want a demon uh, you know, being one of your references. And so the scripture says in Acts chapter 16 uh, that he becomes greatly annoyed. That's actually in the Bible. If you're bored right now, just look it up. Uh, um, and, uh, and so he cast this demon out and she loses her ability to tell the future. Uh, and, and she was a slave girl. And so her, her owners were, were mad because they were making money off her ability to tell the future because this demon had been possessing her. And so they take Paul and Silas to the authorities and have them beaten and thrown into prison. So it's economic reason. Pilate crucified Jesus, not because he believed Jesus was worthy of death, but because he wanted to keep the peace. He didn't want word getting back to the emperor in Rome that he couldn't handle his business. So for peace, he had Jesus killed. Herod, one of the local kings, he had James killed. 
And he found that that won him a lot of approval from his constituents. And so he had Peter arrested so he could get even more. What about America? We, we all live here in America. What's America's relationship with Christianity? Uh, back in the olden days of Facebook when it was kind of cool, uh, you would be tempted if you weren't um, married or you weren't definitively single to put it's complicated. Uh, you can still do it, by the way, in case any of you want to be honest about that uh, online. Uh, and uh, I, I think that is America's relationship with Christianity. I think it's complicated. You know, depending on where you live, it's easier to be a follower of Jesus in Houston than what I imagine it is in Boston or Maine. Um, you know, depending on maybe your income or your ethnicity uh, or your industry that you're, that you're in. I heard a story from our church family of uh, someone who just left their company because their workplace culture was trying to push them to do things that Christ would not have them do. And so they actually needed to leave. That was here in, in Houston. I heard that story this week. Um, so I think it's complicated to be a Christian anywhere. Right? And that's why Jesus said in verse 17, and this is where we ended last week, this is my command, love each other. Right? Because you don't know what your relationship with the world is going to be like. They may listen to you and receive you. They may totally reject you. So you got to love one another. The allies are inside this room. And that's why when we don't love each other well, we go and look for the allies outside and it makes it even more complicated. Right? But if we love one another really well, whether we're loved and approved of outside this building or we're rejected, we can handle that because we can handle it together. Love each other. This is my command, Jesus says. And he says... Uh, that you're going to be hated for my name, which is important. This is just a public service announcement. If people don't like you, make sure it's Jesus' fault and not your fault. <laughs> and if it is your fault, Jesus doesn't want any of that blame. So if people don't like you because you're a jerk, you don't need to raise the persecution flag. Right? And I think that's important for us as individuals. I think it's important for us as uh, collections of Christians because Christians have have hurt people throughout history. I mean, uh, you know, obviously none of us were there, but Christianity did not come out of the Crusades with their hands very clean. For generations in England, Christian Protestants and Christian Catholics were murdering one another. That's why some people came to America to, to escape some of that. When the Americans got here, they used Genesis chapter one, or what would become Americans. When they got here, they used Genesis chapter one, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply as justification for, for removing the Native Americans for, uh, from their their villages. Uh, John Calvin, a hero of the faith, he oversaw or at least turned a blind eye to Christians being murdered in his town, uh, a group called Anabaptists. If you've ever been in a Baptist church, uh, which you have, by the way, um, if you're here today, um, we don't tell a lot of people that, uh, but uh, <laughs> we, we came from the Anabaptists and John Calvin, hero of the faith, oversaw the execution of some of those early Anabaptists. You know why they were so mad? Because they were baptizing adults in and around Switzerland. Isn't that crazy? Right. Martin Luther, um, the, the great reformer, at the end of his life became anti-Semitic or, or at least wrote down some anti-Semitic uh, semantic, uh, semantic, uh, um, rants. You know, we, we all know or should know the biblical um, 
justifications that were wrongly used to um, not just justify, but maybe even approve slavery and segregation in the not so distant past of the United States. And it's important for us to remember as individuals, but also as a group of people, if we are going to be rejected by those outside, let's make sure that we're rejected because of Christ's name and not the name that we've earned for ourselves. All right, PSA over. Number three, Jesus tells the world the truth and the world is now accountable for the truth. Jesus tells the world the truth and is now accountable for the truth. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuses for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus is quoting either Psalm 35 or Psalm 69. That phrase, hated me without reason, is found in both. He talks about his works. And the works in the Gospel of John that he's referring to are the seven signs that John has built his gospel on, uh, turning water into wine, cleansing the temple, healing the noble man's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and raising Lazarus from the dead. These are the signs or the works in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is saying, I did these works in front of people, that combined with my teaching when Israel, these Israelites of this generation, when they stand before God, they are going to stand without an excuse because I did the signs. And Jesus lays a definitive line in the sand for us. If you believe in God, you have to believe in me. If you, you, you cannot hate Jesus and love God, which many Israelites were trying to do at the time. That's what they were trying to, the Pharisees were trying to do. We, we reject Jesus, but we want God. And Jesus says, you can't do that. To hate me is to hate my father. To love me is to love my father. So for the 86% of Americans today who believe in God, Jesus would say to them, if you don't believe in me, you don't really believe in God because as John starts his gospel in the beginning was the word parenthesis Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God number four disciples of Jesus partner with the Holy Spirit to testify about Jesus Verse 26, when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He talks about the advocate. He mentioned the advocate, the Holy Spirit to them in chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. What was the Holy Spirit going to do? He was going to help them carry on the work of Jesus, even though Jesus was not with them. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, because in John chapter 14, verse 6, in, in the same conversation, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is present with the disciples. And he says, the Holy Spirit will testify about me. The Spirit of God is active in the world, telling people about the Son of God. This idea that the Holy Spirit is in the world testifying about Jesus, it gives me hope. Because where we have failed so far, God's Spirit is still preaching the message. So we're off the hook. Then we'll just let the Holy Spirit do it. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, and you also 
must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. You also must. I want you to look at that word. Must. M-U-S-T. Do you call yourself a follower of Christ today? If the answer is in the ballpark of yes, then M-U-S-T. You must. You must. Testify, Jesus says. We partner with the Holy Spirit to tell the stories of Jesus. That's a very simple but profound word from Christ today that will totally revolutionize all of our lives if we take it seriously. I must, you must testify. We have to begin to tell the story of Jesus to people who do not believe in Jesus. We must do it. But it's hard because A, we're members of a secret and invisible kingdom. And also, it's super awkward. You can imagine going to work tomorrow and saying, how was your weekend? You say, great. You ask them, how was your weekend? They say, it was great. And you say, do you have 30 minutes so I can tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You know, it's awkward. So I want to encourage you with just one simple phrase. If you could write this down, put this in your phone. That reminds me of something I read in the scripture. If, if we could memorize that and just start putting it into play, it is always, always relevant. If someone that you work with is suffering, that reminds me of something I read in the scripture. If you have people in your life who are celebrating right now, just found out one of our couples got engaged. Congratulations to you guys. That reminds me of something that I read in the scripture. Jesus went to a wedding. You know that was the first miracle that Jesus did? It was at a wedding. He turned water into wine. You know, people who have experienced loss, that reminds me of something I read in the scripture. People who are seeking the truth, that reminds me of something I read in the scripture. People needing direction, that reminds me of something I read in the scripture. Struggling with parenting or their marriage or their singleness, that reminds me of something I read in the scripture. We have to, we must testify about Jesus. These last few weeks, because of Jesus' teaching here, John chapters 14, 15, I've been reading ahead, 16, 17, 8, the whole thing, really. Uh, (laughs) I've been asking myself a difficult question. Um, Am I really carrying on the work of Jesus, or am I just religious? I think as best that I can tell by reading the scripture, if we are not carrying on the work of Jesus, I'm just religious. It's hard to say that I'm a follower of Jesus if I'm not following through on what he has asked me to do. And maybe that's a super easy question for you to ask yourself. It has been a very difficult question one for me? Am I carrying on the work of Jesus or am I just religious? Jesus had prepared the disciples for what came next. Thank God for us. They followed through. Let's transition to a time of prayer.
Why don't you stand up? I'm going to ask our prayer folks to come and take their places here in the front. So we're transitioning to prayer. That reminds me of something I read in the scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you need a security guard of God's peace over your mind and heart today? Prayer and petition. I'm also reminded of all of the people in the scripture who brought someone they cared about to Jesus. The father brought his son. The four friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Jesus was stationed in Peter's home one night after the Sabbath sun went down and people just brought their sick and diseased and demon possessed to him. So maybe your request today isn't for you, but it's you bringing somebody to Christ to pray for them. I want to invite you to do that now. God, we Ask these prayers, we ask them in the name of Jesus. Jesus, you said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, and so would you, would you help us now with these? And all of God's people said, amen. I want to invite you to come and pray.